The reading this evening is from Nahum 1, um, and that can be found on page 937 of the chapter. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me lead us in a prayer as we begin. We were thinking last week, our Father, that Blessed is the one who meditates on your word day and night. Happy is the one who meditates on your word day and night. And we pray, Father, as we come to this difficult bit of your word, that you would cause us to think carefully about it. And help us, Father, to see why it is good. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, When the Bible is normally read in church, as it was this evening, um, the reader says, this is the word of the Lord, and we all say... Thanks be to God. But I wonder how you felt about saying it this evening with tonight's passage. I'm not going to ask you to show your hands, but how many of you had a little bit of a pause just before we said thanks be to God? How many of you said it, but perhaps it was through gritted teeth? How many of you didn't say it at all? And how many of you weren't listening to the reading at all and just said it anyway? Because tonight's topic is difficult, isn't it, on modern ears? See, when we read things like God is love or the Lord is my shepherd, come and I'll give you rest, we're happy to say, thanks be to God. But when we hear verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God, 
The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. It's not so easy, is it, to say thanks be to God. And that's just us inside the church, let alone outside. The idea that God might judge, might take vengeance, that God might be jealous, is not politically correct in our culture. See, if you go into the office or um, college or the coffee shop tomorrow... And uh, just stand up and just say to everyone, look, I just wanted to tell you, God is love. People might think you're a little bit weird, a little bit keen, and probably laugh, but that'd be about it. But if you stand up tomorrow in the coffee shop or the office or the college and say, verse 2, the Lord is a jazz and avenging God, the Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath, you're likely to be accused of promoting hate speech. See, in our culture, we love the idea of a God of love, but we don't like the idea of a God of judgment. Uh, Charles Taylor, a philosopher who writes about our current culture, he says judgment has become now a problem for God rather than for the unrepentant. So if we say there is a God, he is a God of love. We've kind of moved on from these medieval ideas of a God who takes vengeance against his enemies. And yet, there's a clash. Because the Bible seems utterly unembarrassed about describing a God of judgment. A God who gets angry, a God who takes vengeance. And it's that same book, isn't it, that tells us God is love, which also tells us that God takes uh, action against his enemy and judges. And if, just in case you're thinking of this, it's not something you can easily brush aside by saying, well, that was the God of the Old Testament, we've now got the God of the New Testament, because Jesus says pretty similar things. Uh, Take this New Testament quote uh, from Jesus. I'm afraid I haven't got my laptop, I'm going to turn around. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell, where the fire never goes out, where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. These are words from Jesus' lips. It's exactly the same as the God we see in the Old Testament. Tonight we're continuing our series called Mistaken Thinking, and we're thinking about some of those unhelpful assumptions we might make, or, or might have, about the faith that will derail us further up the tracks, or perhaps prevent us making a commitment uh, to Jesus in the first place. And tonight we're thinking about this issue of having a lopsided view of God, And what we mean by that is only thinking about God's judgment, uh, only thinking about God's love and not his judgment. And the way I want us to tackle this this evening is to think about three objections I think our culture has, or you might have, in seeing a God of judgment. And I want us to see tonight that they aren't actually that satisfying. And I, I want to be so bold to say that actually by the end of tonight, I want us to thank God that he is a God of justice. Let's uh, tackle those on your sheet. Uh, The first one's this, yeah, but an angry God cannot be a God of love. Um, This first objection, it's one of contradiction. See, you cannot, by definition, have a God who judges and a God who loves. You cannot have a God who says he loves people and yet takes vengeance. It just doesn't work. It's like oil and water, they don't mix. And perhaps there are good reasons for this. Uh, We see in everyday life. Um, Imagine you're chatting to someone 
Uh, and they're asking uh, about someone you know, perhaps a teacher or a boss, and you say to them, yeah, my boss is an angry person. By that, they're not going to read into it that he's or she is a loving person. They're kind of contradictory, aren't they? If someone's an angry person, they're not a very loving person. And yet, the Bible doesn't seem a contradiction. Have a look at verse 3. It's on page 237. The Lord is slow, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. He is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are at the dust of his feet. But now look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. So we like verse 7, don't we? I mean, verse 7 is the sort of verse you'd have on a calendar, and you're opening it up and think, yeah, God's good, he's a God of refuge. But verse 3, we, you wouldn't put that on a calendar. I wouldn't leave that, he doesn't leave the guilty go unpunished. But do you see, these come in the same chapter. There's obviously not a contradiction. Here's the thing um, we see about God's anger in the Bible. Uh, God's anger is not the opposite of love. Anger is not the opposite of love. Indifferences. Uh, let me give you an example of this. Um, I was in uh, McDonald's last week in Waterloo Station. Um, it was kids' dinner time, and I thought I'd give them a healthy dinner, so took the family to, to McDonald's. And uh, we were all enjoying a meal. They were tucking into their burgers and chips, and... Um, uh, we were all sitting there, two young children, one baby, and uh, a guy had just walked in who was pretty worse for wear, and uh, he was smoking, and he kind of just breathed smoke everywhere and kind of stumped out his cigarette on the floor of the station, uh, which apparently you're not meant to do. Uh, and then he went over to some young woman and started hassling her. Uh, she tried to be polite, but you, it was clear he's making her uncomfortable. Uh, and then I thought, oh, goodness, he's, he's coming into where we were eating, I remember I got my two young children and a baby here and started hassling people. And it was clear that we had to leave. Now, what was my reaction at that point? Well, it was anger. Why is this guy coming in, doing this, hassling this young woman? Uh, why is he hassling uh, people uh, eating and making my family feel unsafe? Now, I, you know, I, I didn't hit him or anything. I didn't feel <laughs> masses of anger. And I'm, you know, I'm fine now. I've forgiven him. But do you see the point? Why did I have that reaction? It's because of love. It's because I love my children and I don't want to see them come to harm. And so I get angry with anything that threatens that. See, if I sat there and just thought, well, it doesn't matter if this guy comes over to my kids and was totally indifferent, then you'll question how much love I have for my children. Perhaps you're not yet convinced. Let me give you another example in marriage. Um, often, I think we often think that marriage, uh, the, the biggest threat to a marriage is jealousy or anger. And um, of course, in dis- used in destructive ways, they can utterly destroy a marriage. But actually, do you know what the biggest problem is? The biggest problem is indifference. See, anger in a marriage isn't always out of place. If a spouse is having an affair or breaking their marriage vows, then anger is the appropriate response. Because you love the other person, you don't want anything to threaten your marriage vows. See, it's when there's indifference in a marriage, and you just don't care if they're with someone else, or that's when there's a big problem. Do you see the point? Love and anger go together. They're not opposites. Indifference is. And both that picture of a father and uh, a married relationship is how God's judgment is often described in the Bible. Uh, Because God cares so much for his children, 
because he is related to his people like a marriage covenant, he loves them and he gets angry with anything that threatens that. It's precisely because God loves his people, his creation, that he judges anything that threatens the well-being of those things. See, God shows vengeance, not despite his love, but because of his love. Now, let me just show you some of that in the passage uh, tonight. See, this passage was written when a massive world power, Assyria, was essentially doing a land grab, going around bullying God's people. Um, Think 1940, when kind of most of Europe fell to uh, Nazi Germany. Um, That was nothing compared to Assyria. I've got a little map here. Um, Hopefully you can make this out. Just look at the green area. That is the Assyrian Empire at that point. And uh, if you look very carefully, there's a little circle around Judah of a grey area. That is what remains of God's people. These Assyrians were, you know, pretty big. And, And the way you build an empire like Assyria is not going around asking people politely or using persuasive words, but you use some pretty horrific techniques. Um, They loved to behead their enemies, but their favourite technique was to take their skin off while they were alive. I'm sorry to tell you that. I hope there's no young people here. Um, Here's a picture from the British Library, uh, British Museum, and you can just make out what they're doing to some of their enemies. Now, just imagine at that point if God's reaction was, don't worry, I love everyone, carry on. Now imagine how sweet verse 9 sounds if you're in that context. The Lord says this, Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring it to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. See, when you're in a context where you worry that you, whether you're going to have your skin next week, the Lord is saying, nobody threatens my people. See, the big point here is that the God who judges is the same God as the God who loves. It's not contradictory, it's the other side of the coin. And you cannot have a God who loves without a God who cares about things threatening that love. Uh, Here's what Tom Wright says. I don't always agree with Tom Wright, um, but he says some very helpful things at stages. And here's what Tom Wright says. God's wrath properly is an aspect of his love. It is because God loves human beings with a steady, unquenchable passion that he hated apartheid, that he hates torture and cluster bombs, that he loathes slavery, that his wrath is relentless against the rich who oppress the poor. If God was not wrathful against these and so many other distortions of our human vocation, he is not loving. Do you see the point? It's because of his love. Now, I just need to clarify this a little bit because um, God's anger is not like human anger. He doesn't fly off the handle like some of the anger we experience in our world today. There is the danger here that if some of us have had uh, bad experiences of anger, and there will be people in this room uh, in a crowd this size, uh, perhaps from a parent or a friend or a, a, a relationship, there is the danger that we take that picture of anger and project it onto God. But God's anger is different. He says in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. He's patient. He takes care. He does it fairly. Uh, John Stott, um, a famous preacher, says this, God's anger is a continuous, settled antagonism aroused only by evil and expresses it in condemnation. Do you see the point? Only aroused by evil. It doesn't fly off the handle and it's settled. 
It's not uh, overly, uh, it's not yeah, flying off the handle. See, if we say we have a God of love, we have to say we have a God who judges. Let's think about this second objection we might encounter today. Um, it's this, yeah, but an angry God fuels hate. See, this second response, I think, is one of social concern. Uh, the thought is, if we have a God who promotes, uh, who shows anger and vengeance, then we're going to produce people who show anger and vengeance. Uh, we say to our children, don't we, don't hit your sister just because she took your train. Uh, don't take vengeance into your own hands. And, and if you're telling those same children that we have a God who judges, who takes vengeance, then surely it follows that they're going to do the same. And there are, to be fair, very good reasons, I think, for people making this conclusion. We're aware, aren't we, only too real, about the, how religious devotion can lead to very violent consequences. But actually, Christianity draws the opposite conclusion to what we would expect. Rather than a God of vengeance being an excuse for vengeance, it is actually the antidote to vengeance. How does that work? Well, let me give you two reasons. Um, First of all, because judgment is God's job. Uh, We see that in Romans 12. Here's a, a bit from Romans 12. He says this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, love your enemies. We, we love that bit, don't we? Love your enemies, at least in theory. But do you see why he's saying it? It's because it's God's role to avenge. See, the fact that God will judge wrongdoing one day is a reason to love your enemies, to not show the vengeance that the world does. We don't have to help God out by making someone's life a hell when we know that hell is a reality. You can leave it to the Lord. Secondly, it's also the antidote to vengeance because we realise that we deserve to be in the same boat. See, the the fact that God judges can never be said with any kind of air of superiority. We can't just say, yeah, hey, you're going to get it one day and kind of chuckle to ourselves because we know that apart from God's grace, we deserve the same. Uh, Ephesians says this, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and followed its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, You see the point? We're in the same boat, apart from the grace of God. And this helps us show immense empathy, doesn't it, with even our fiercest enemies, because we're more like them than not like them. A few years ago, um, someone helpfully uh, stole my laptop, uh, my bag, a couple of books, and uh, most heartbreaking of all, my pencil case with one of my favourite pens in it. And um, I, I was pretty gutted at the time. I didn't have much money. Uh, I was in voluntary work, and uh, I was pretty cheesed off about it. And on top of that, the, the person did it in a horrible way. They came into the church building, made up some story about wanting to come on an uh, alpha course, and uh, kind of lied to my friend and just walked out uh, with my bag. And she felt really bad about it. And the police tried their best, to be, friend, uh, to, uh, to be, um, to be honest, but they just couldn't convict and I felt pretty cross about it. 
And I remember a friend said to me, remember that we have a God who will judge evil one day. Now, it's not that I thought from that, oh, this, you think this is bad, fella, but you're going to get it one day. It made me think, I don't need to obsess over getting justice in this life. If I lose money, which I did, I don't need to obsess about getting it back. And it made me think that I don't need to get angry. I don't need to take vengeance. God will do it one day. But it also made me think that actually I'm not much different to that man. I can't just sit there and think, well, I would never steal a laptop. I'm much better. Apart from the grace of God, I would be the same. And I would face the same outcome. And do you know what? I'm not perfect, and I found this really difficult, but it even enabled me to pray for the guy while recognising that he had done wrong. See, the point is, isn't it? You see, it's precisely because we have a God of judgment that I don't need to judge now. A God who judges is the antidote to vengeance. Now, I think there's a huge irony in our culture today on this very point because we've dismissed the idea that God judges. We don't like that idea, but actually it feels like we're much more judgmental than we have been for a long, long while And it's absolutely fascinating what's going on in our culture at the moment with um, things like removing statues of famous people or disputes over the legacies of historical figures. Um, You'll be aware of the dispute that happened uh, over Churchill when someone quoted one of Churchill's words and people pointed out some pretty horrific things he had said uh, in the past. And you may have seen last week, uh, there's a picture of it here, that uh, General Franco's body was uh, removed Uh, from a place of honour in Spain and buried elsewhere. Now, I'm not going to go anywhere near the question of who's right, who's wrong on that debate. But it is interesting, isn't it, how the debate has become so big in our culture. And the reason is, I think, is because we've lost this sense of divine judgment. We've lost this sense of leaving things for the verdict of God. And because we kind of see our world as so closed in and kind of in the here and now, we have to bring that judgment in the here and now. And obviously when historical figures are dead and long and gone, the only thing we can judge is their legacy. See, the point is that having a God who judges is the way to stop vengeance. And I actually thank God regularly that he is a God who judges. I was just reading over the weekend about a horrific murder where the person who did it, because of his age, got quite a short sentence and probably will be out by the time he's my age. And I thank God that justice will be done, even if it's not done perfectly in this world. Thirdly, yeah, but an angry God just sounds horrible. Um, This third response, um, I, I wanted to include it. It's the kind of what I call the icky response. Um, It just doesn't feel very nice. It doesn't feel very appealing to have a God who judges. I prefer to think of a God who loves because it just feels much nicer. But actually, I want us to see on this third point, this is a fatal move. Because if we lose God's judgment, we lose God's love. Why do we do that? Well, let me ask you a question. How do you know someone loves you? How do you know someone really loves you? Well, you could say, well, I look at how they treat me. They buy me flowers, they text, they check up on how I'm doing. And that that would be a fair indication. But I think it's a pretty shallow one. Because those things are all conditional. 
See, the person could be buying you flowers, they could be texting, they could be checking up on how you're doing, because you're a pretty decent person, because you treat them pretty nicely. It's a much better question to ask, how do they treat you when you're not at your best? See, when you blow up at them, or you forget that you're meant to be meeting them, and they say, that's it, we're done, you can rightly ask, how much did they love you? So you know when someone really loves you, when they've seen you at their worst, when they still stick with you. When I think through who my closest friends are, it's those that I've done pretty stupid things to, and those people that have seen me at my worst, and decided to forgive me and stick with me. They're my closest friends. Now, why is that? Because you know that your friendship or your relationship actually costs something. See, if I do something wrong, take, for example, I forget to meet someone, I let them down in a big way, they could say, that's it, we're done. And to some extent, they're within their rights to do so. But it's when they say, yes, it'd be lovely to have you here, but let's put it behind us. That's love. And it's similar with God himself. See, if God doesn't really judge, if he doesn't really get angry at sin, if he doesn't take vengeance on his enemies, then we're saying that he didn't, didn't really cost him anything to forgive you and me. He loves me anyway, so that's what he's like. And it didn't really cost him very much. But it's when you see that God does indeed judge, that his anger is aroused at sin, that his judgment is poised over you and me like an arrow sitting on a bow ready to be released. And when you then see that God sent his only son to step into the breach, to take the judgment on his own shoulders, to shield you from the wrath to come, that is when you know God really loves you. See, God's love costs something. It cost him his only son so that as he died, as he took judgment on himself, he showed God's justice perfectly and showed his love for his people. So you see the point, don't you? If you diminish God's judgment, you actually get rid of the gospel. You diminish his love. It's only when we look at the depths of hell that we see the heights of God's love for you and me. As we close, I just want to set out a couple of implications uh, from what we've looked at this evening. First of all, remember God is not safe. God is not safe. Uh, there's a great moment, isn't there, in those Narnia books, uh, The Lion of Witch and the Wardrobe, um, where they're speaking about Aslan, who's the kind of Jesus uh, figure uh, in the uh, stories. And um, Susan's wondering what he's like. She hasn't met him yet. And she asks this, is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that is a great picture, isn't it, of the God we meet in the Bible. He's good. He sent his only son to be our saviour. But he's not safe. He is a God who, just, uh, who judges sin. And if God really is this way, I wonder, are you ready to meet him? Because the Bible says that one day all of us will appear before Christ and be asked to give an account for our life. And we have a God who is not safe, even if he's good. Uh, a previous vicar I knew, um, 
people used to ask him, uh, what do you do for a living? And uh, he would respond, I get people ready for death. And uh, it used to be a bit of a conversation killer. And uh, I love to use it myself, but I'm not that brave. Um, If the conversation did go on, he would then say, imagine how terrifying it would be to meet God without your sin being dealt with. And it was, you know, it's pretty, pretty brutal, isn't it? But it's true. We all will meet God, and we all need to ask that question of ourselves, how is our sin dealt with? Secondly, speak unashamedly. Speak unashamedly. Um, I know we're in a difficult culture to speak about justice and judgment. Uh, I think we need to do that with sensitivity, and hopefully I've modelled some of that uh, tonight, and I'm sorry if I haven't. But if we shy away from God's complete character, people aren't going to understand the gospel. See, people are only going to think of the church as some kind of quaint activity group, some quirk from the past that's still hanging around. It's only if we only just sort of tell people, yeah, God loves you, and it's okay. See, if we want to tell people that God loves them, we need to show them the problem. We need to show them that he is a God of justice. Because it's as we share the depths of God's anger and his justice that we see the arms of his love as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you very much for this truth that you are a jealous and avenging God, that even though you're slow to anger, you do anger at sin. And we thank you, Father, that you do care about our world and care about all those things that threaten its goodness. And Father, all of us find this difficult, and we pray, Father, for your help, that you would help us to see the beauty of your character and help us, Father, to respond to that uh, in the right way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.